unbelievable story. If these allegations are actually true, my goodness, we got bigger problems than anybody, anybody ever thought. It's good to have you here, everyone. It seems that the feds may have engaged in massive overreach. You know, nothing surprises me these days. Nothing, nothing at all. According to these allegations reported first by Fox News, it is possible here that your bank may have been going through at the Fed's request and and looking at all of your transactions. And if you had anything that suggested you were Trump-friendly or MAGA-friendly or maybe had visited Dick's Sporting Goods, good luck. This is unbelievable to me. And again, we need to get to the bottom of it. Welcome. We got a big, big show today. We're going to be all over that. Plus, what do you know? The Fed's finally confirming what you and I already knew, and that was that, that Hunter Biden laptop. It was authentic. We're going to get into all of that, plus some uh, new things happening over at Davos. It's just an unbelievable, unbelievable exchange with uh, someone I used to work with, actually, at Bloomberg, a European reporter who wants to know whether or not these countries can Trump-proof themselves. You'll hear what private equity investor David Rubenstein has to say about that. And I'm so excited because coming up momentarily, momentarily, you know, I've been telling you over and over and over and over again about this fabulous new podcast. And I'm not talking about mine. We know, I hope you're following mine. You better be following mine. If you're not, by the way, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you go over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts to follow the Trish Regan Show. And while you're there, you're going to follow this fantastic, fantastic show that I've just discovered. Well, One of my friends actually produces it, so maybe I didn't just discover it so organically, but it's called Our American Stories, and Lee Habib, who produces it, is going to join us momentarily with some highlights, a special, special treat for this Friday. Again, welcome. Good to have you here. We are brought to you, as always, in part by LegacyPMInvestments.com, 1-866-589-0560, Beginning on the breaking news, ladies and gentlemen, the feds have accused, or whether, rather Jim Jordan and some GOP members, and a reporter that I happen to know, she's a very, very good reporter, Brooke Singman, over at Fox News, are accusing the feds of massive overreach. Alarming surveillance is the title of this piece. She wrote, feds asked banks to search private transactions for terms like MAGA, terms like Trump, with one bank allegedly handing over information to the FBI voluntarily and without any kind of legal process. Not all banks were that way. Some of them are kind of mad. Maybe that explains why Jamie Dimon was so ticked off. The CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. We're going to play some of that sound for you later from Davos. Anyway, according to this article, they were looking for things like Trump, MAGA, Bass Pro Shops, Cabela's, Dick Sporting's Goods. I mean... Gosh, I think I got some Christmas presents for the kids at some of those places like Dick's Sporting Goods. Uh-oh. Um, it, it also included Antifa. Interestingly, Biden, Kamala. So this is, again, according to this reporter over at Fox News Digital, the Treasury Department's Office of Stakeholder Integration and Engagement in the Strategic Operations of Financial Crimes Enforcement, she writes, well, they were requesting all of this information. It's an organization, government bureaucracy, right, known as FinCEN. And it basically went out to all these financial institutions, and they outlined who would be, say, a person of interest. Would you be a person of interest? Did you ever go and buy a Trump hat? <laughs> or, I don't know, 
New winter boots at Dick's Sporting Goods, or maybe you got a sleeping bag and some stuff for a tent? Well, anyway, they, they want to know that, which just strikes me as incredibly, incredibly invasive. I mean, you want to talk overreach here. I mean, this is really nuts. If this is all proven out to be true, my gosh. According to her sources, search terms like MAGA and Trump were generated by a bank, and I quote, and used to help them identify suspicious transactions when reviewing customer transactional information. It is unclear which bank generated the terms. We do know uh, per some of these reports that it is possible Bank of America was involved in this. The committee's investigation, she writes, also revealed that FinCEN distributed slides prepared by KeyBank to other banks to explain how they could use merchant codes, MCC, to detect customers whose transactions may reflect, quote, potential, uh, well, I, I hate to even say this, but active shooters, you know, they're using it to terrorists, domestic terrorists, blah, blah, blah. Like, they're trying to find the bad guys. They're trying to find the bad guys, and they're finding them by searching words like Cabela's, Dick's Sporting Goods, Bass Pro Shops. I, I mean, it just... It, it, it feels like one big, massive overreach. Like, look, we all want to be safe, right? But at some point, where do you draw the line? Where, like, suddenly now, if you are a Republican or if they think you voted Republican, if you're one of the, quote, crazies, as Joy Behar would label you, from The View, or you're one of these um, people that need to be deprogrammed, as Hillary Clinton would tell you, uh, and has told the media, if, if you're one of those or perceived to be one of those people, are you now at risk of having the federal government there in your bank account? Because that's certainly what it feels like here. And I, I find this to be extremely alarming, extremely concerning. We worry about Big Brother. The capabilities of the federal government are actually quite extraordinary. Think about it, right? In this particular moment in time, Jim Jordan is quite concerned about this. He is investigating this, and he was recently on Fox News talking about this. Let's go to some sound from Jim Jordan blasting, blasting Biden's Fed. I mean, this is deep state on steroids, is it not, for for these allegations? Let's listen in. Yeah, now in the last year, Sean, we, we've exposed the censorship where you had big government, big tech, big media, big academia working to censor Americans. Now we have financial surveillance where it's big government working with big banks, big corporations to surveil, to spy on Americans. And so it was big banks looking and searching private transactions using key terms at the suggestion of the federal government to, to find out what, what you're buying, what you're spending your money on. Scary stuff. All it looks like without any warrant, without any legal process, they undertook this as a way to identify domestic violent extremists. And here, here's, here's what it sounds a lot like. Remember that, that memorandum in Richmond about uh, pro-life Catholics are extremists because they go to church and they're pro-life and they talk about you know, protecting human life? That's exactly what these documents sound like. We're right on the, on the you know, front edge of this. We'll see how it all progresses. But it's scary stuff. It's financial surveillance of the American people. Financial surveillance of the American people. Think about that. Yeah, you know, hey, Hunter Biden, he doesn't even have to register as a foreign agent. He can collect millions as a quote-unquote lobbyist, sort of, although he's not registered 
What was he anyway, right? Let's let's think about that. What did he call himself? I'm assuming a consultant, getting all kinds of money from all over the world, and somehow he's able to, to have all that money going in. Well, technically he didn't. Actually, Treasury did send out lots and lots. I mean, I want to say more than 70 suspicious activity reports just on Hunter Biden. Nobody just did anything with it. However, but this stuff, this is, you know, everyday folks that might have bought a Trump hat or, you know, bought a Trump rally trinket. If you put it on a credit card, suddenly now you could be surveilled. I realize that they're doing this all in the name of keeping everybody safe, et cetera, et cetera. But hey, didn't they go in spy on Donald Trump's campaign in 2016, Carter Page? Didn't, didn't they wiretap his phones using this particular section of the Patriot Act, which they thought would enable them, of course, to, to check in on Donald Trump and the campaign? You, you understand, I mean, when we talk about government gone wild, this is an example of it. And as we go increasingly, increasingly into this new era with the likes of AI, et cetera, I think it's uh, uh, critical that we protect ourselves and that we demand that our lawmakers protect us from big government and big brother. Because this is the kind of stuff that can go really south really fast. I mean, think about everything that's just happened, right, in the last couple of years. Last four years, really, ever since Donald Trump came on the scene. It's like between the Trump dossier that was fictional, that they tried to have us buy, totally buy, between that, between the Hunter Biden laptop, which, oh, that was just misinformation. Misinformation from Rudy Giuliani and company provided to you courtesy of the Russians. (laughs) And that turned out to be entirely, utterly, totally fake. News today that the feds are confirming, officially confirming for the very first time, they're letting us know, in fact, what we already knew. The Hunter Biden laptop is absolutely, positively, 100% real, ladies and gentlemen. It just so happened that this guy, being the not very bright guy that he is, Hunter, really did leave it at a computer store in Delaware. And the Delaware guy really did get a little concerned about it and called Rudy Giuliani. I mean, like, it actually went down the way they told us it went down. And yet think about the effort that they engaged in, that the Democrats engaged in, that the deep state engaged in, 51 ex-spies, including the former deputy director of the CIA, Mike Morrell. I mean, he, he spearheaded the thing with Blinken's help. Tony Blinken admitting that in testimony, that he talked to Mike Morrell, and Morrell and he decided it would be a good idea to have this letter, right, that they would publish, and they get all these people that were former officials within the intelligence community come out and say this is nothing but a bunch of Russian misinformation that was getting fed to the American public and that it wasn't real. And then, of course, you had Joe Biden himself, who one would have to think he knew that the laptop was real. He went out there and he promoted this on the national stage. I suspect he knew. He knew. And yet, look at what he floated. Let's watch this sound. Let's go back to 2020 and hear what Joe Biden said about that laptop. 50 former national intelligence folks 
who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plan. They have said that this is, has all the care. Four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. This is classic Trump. We have four days left, and all of a sudden there's a laptop. There's overwhelming evidence that from the intelligence community that the Russians are engaged. I still think that the stories from the fall about your son Hunter were Russian disinformation and smear campaign, like you said. Yes, yes, yes. I know you'd ask it. I have no response. It's another smear campaign. It's a last-ditch effort in this desperate campaign to smear me and my family. The vast majority of the intelligence people have come out and said there's no basis at all. Hmm. Except there was. Except that everybody was right. And Joe Biden and the deep state and everybody that perpetuated that, the mainstream media, they were all wrong. Think about that. I mean, it's really alarming and startling. And to think that the New York Post, I mean, this is a paper that was founded, say what you want about it these days, it was founded by Alexander Hamilton. And it had its Twitter account shut down. And had Elon Musk not come forward and scooped up Twitter for an outrageous sum of money, <laughs> too much, frankly, I told you that deal would have to go through, we, we wouldn't know a whole lot, right? Like these, these, these bits of information are just coming out sort of bit by bit. But the reality is, yes, the laptop was real. Let's go to the documentation. Miranda Devine actually tweeting this out, uh, part of the Part of the uh, information that came from the new report, she writes in the new court filing today, the DOJ confirms Hunter Biden's laptop is real. What do you know? Huh. Huh. That he left it at a computer store. Ta-da. And that the contents matched what they obtained from a search warrant of his iCloud. <laughs> she makes the point that, you know, don't hurt, hold your breath here. It's not like you're going to get an apology. I think we deserve an apology. What do you think? By the way, it's a live show. So if you're watching right now, make sure you subscribe, make sure you go and you, you make some comments because we're having a discussion and I'm going to get out to all of you in just a moment. Thank you for being here. But this is something else. Basically, investors also later came into possession, she writes, investigators later came to the possession of the defendant's Apple MacBook Pro, which he had left at a computer store. Bingo. Okay, so that was not a fake computer. That was not something that the Russians drummed up. No, that's really just how he is. I mean, I, I, you've seen some of the pictures. They're pretty lewd. I mean, not good. Not good. Not good. And, and there's a host of other sort of deviant things on there. Apparently, that's in part why they were looking at it in the first place, because of the international deviant things that were going on. And yet all of these guys and gals, they came out. I mean, Brennan, Morell. I mean, the list goes on and on. Look at those pictures. This was a great cover, by the way, by the New York Post. So then you start to think, what the heck? I mean, this, this institution of government, are they really on our side? Doesn't feel that way. Feels like they're on their side. And then when things come along that are kind of inconvenient, the inconvenient truth, like, you know, Hunter Biden really is that messed up, and he... He really, he really did have this laptop. I mean, I could believe. I mean, like it looks like an intelligence operation. It looks like some kind of dirty trick because nobody could actually be that dense. But no, he is. He is. He is, ladies and gentlemen. So then you're going to ask other questions. And that's that Pandora's box that really does need to get opened. 
and we need to have, what do they say? Some sunlight on it. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. But people don't trust Biden right now. They don't trust him one single bit. They look at what has happened to our economy. They look at what has happened to our border. They look at what has happened to us as a nation, to our self-esteem, to the division that you see now in America. They look at what's going on overseas, and they say, we don't like this. We don't like the direction of our country, which is why this is a candidate who's running for president again, who's looking at the worst poll numbers in modern history. He doesn't have anything to run on. I mean, before it was, let me stay in my basement and pretend I'm a nice guy. He never talked about policy. I warned you, I warned you, you know what? Policy matters. Say what you want about Trump. We're talking good policy, ladies and gentlemen, that resulted in economic growth, that resulted in American strength. These are things that we need. We need more of. And everybody's kind of coming to that realization that maybe it's not just about being a nice guy, which I don't necessarily think he is. And so now that he is up against it, you know, he's kind of cornered. What does he do? He goes back to the well and you hear, you're going to hear a lot about how Trump is going to ruin America forever. It is the end of our country as we know it is the end of your freedoms. I don't know. I mean, hey, when I get financial surveillance on me, that kind of feels like an end to my freedom. So it's the end of your freedom. And by the way, if you have to be a minority, it is game over, according to Joe Biden. Should Donald Trump be elected because you're going to have all kinds of problems? This is what they're selling over and over again. In mainstream media, on shows like The View, a network show, and here on CNN, where we heard from a congresswoman, everybody's talking about this. This is a tragic story. If this is true, and I have no reason to doubt that it's not, so let me be careful how I phrase that, but... I, and, and I'm not saying that America's perfect, right? We all know that there's pockets of racism and bad stuff here in this country. But I do believe that America is not the place that she wants to describe it as. Listen to her here. These are not little kinks, first of all. Racism, institutional racism, is in the DNA of this country. When you look at uh, what has taken place, look at the, our Native Americans, the genocide of Native Americans. When you look at what is taking place as it relates to African Americans, uh, the 250 years plus of enslaving African Americans, and then you look at the disparities now uh, in our community in terms of health care, unemployment, the wealth gap, housing. You can't tell me that systemic racism does not exist. It's not just a little kink. Secondly, you have personal racism, which is hard to address, but I'll give you one story that shows you why uh, we need to understand that I don't think she really understands racism. I was walking from the House building on Capitol Hill to the Capitol, and a man, a white guy, stopped me and told me I could not get into the member's elevator. And, you know, we have uh, pens, and I was going to vote. And he blocked me from getting into the elevator and told me I was not a member of Congress, and it was for members only. I said, sir, I'm a member of Congress. And he, I showed him my pen, and he said, who's... Okay, um, so that's a horrible story. If you know, again, we have no reason to doubt her. Horrible, horrible story. And by the way, it's not like I'm saying the world's perfect, but I am going to tell you this: a lot has been done to help all kinds of communities, including the African American community in America. And I look at it and say, you know what? There are some good things that happened. I mean, whether or not you think Barack Obama was one of them, uh, that's another story for another day, right? I, 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 did not like his policies. I think he was more divisive. And I think that he actually hurt the economy in ways that we're still trying to recover from. However, the guy got elected twice, right? And he is considered a black American. Therefore, 
you really want to tell me America is that racist? I mean, she's a Congress member. Um, you know, I'm sure that there's, that, like, like she points out, there's bad people everywhere. But I would say, on a whole, like America's doing pretty well. America's actually doing significantly well. I was looking at some data that came out of Johns Hopkins University just the other day, and it was showing the distribution of who's who right at the school. And the population of black and white students overall in the school was roughly the same. It might have been like 14% black, 15% white, 21% Hispanic, and it was significantly an Asian population there as well. But anyway, I looked at that and said, well, that's interesting because that's not necessarily representative or equal to the population as a whole. And yet you have that many students that are African-American there at Johns Hopkins University. Why? Because a lot is being done to try and help these communities and to course correct now. But you got to ask yourself, why isn't it working more? Is it because America is a racist place or is it because we have politicians that basically bank on using this division and trying to make people think that they're down, 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 and that they can never get ahead without their help. I want to show you this study I came across. This was actually published by PBS, and it's from the Urban Institute. And what it shows you is that the racial gap is actually much wider now than it was back in the 1960s. Now, why is that significant? By the way, this data, is a little, this data is a little bit dated. You can see that this article is from a few years ago, and some of the data goes all the way back to 2013. But what I found fascinating is that if you go all the way back to like the 1890s, and you look at all of this right through today, this is another study here. What you find is that the wealth gap it's actually growing nowadays between whites and blacks in America. Now, why would that be? Why would it be worse now than it was in the 1960s? This is a very interesting statistic for you. In fact, the wealth gap is so much bigger. If you look at it and you adjust for today's dollars, like let's just use inflation-adjusted numbers here. I'm going to wonk out on you guys. Watch out, watch out. Basically, you look at the disparity and you see that back in in, 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 in like the 60s, the disparity was somewhere around $95,000, right? So black family versus white family. The white family was ahead by some $95,000. Nowadays, again, we're using apples to apples dollars. A white family is ahead by some $500,000. So that actually supports the argument that black America has been disenfranchised. But the question you then have to ask yourself is what happened in the 1960s? It was Johnson, right? That was the introduction of welfare. That was the introduction of all these special programs. And in the interest of trying to help black America, what happened? Policy members actually hurt black America, socioeconomically speaking, because effectively, when you couldn't have a man in the house because of welfare, they destroyed what is so critical and sort of the foundation of any economic success, and that's marriage. I hate to sound like such a square, but it is. I mean, having two parents in a household, helping to take care and raise a child, helping to support one another in different ways. I mean, I'm not even suggesting that everybody has to work, but everybody plays a role in this. And having a family, getting along in life, these are hard things. When you have two people there, it makes a difference. And I think that has a big part 
or a big role in why you're seeing this disparity. So it, it, it's, it's getting worse, but not from lack of trying. I mean, again, you get the same number of kids that are black that are white enrolled at Johns Hopkins University. There is an effort. I mean, they've had to fight back against it, right, with affirmative action that got shot down by the Supreme Court. But there has been a definite effort by Ivy League institutions, all kinds of universities, to correct this somehow, some way. But if you're not actually addressing the root cause of the problem, I hate to sound like Kamala, but if you're not addressing the root cause of the problem, which really starts at home, in the community, with the family, if you destroy that through your economic policy that actually doesn't help people get ahead, but instead penalizes them when they actually start to earn a little bit of money, then you, you actually create that poverty trap. So while they may have had good intentions, you know what the Democrats did? They created a poverty trap, and now they've realized it works, politically speaking, and so they're perfectly fine. They'll tell you they want to fix it, but they're not actually trying to fix it. And I think this is why when you look at the poll numbers today, and we're going to get to new polls just coming out of New Hampshire, when you look at the poll numbers today, what you see is that Donald Trump is actually making a ton of headway. This must drive Barack Obama absolutely crazy with black Americans Biden's lost 20 points with black Americans because reality is people just want a chance and an opportunity to get ahead. They don't want to look at everything through the prism of race and sex and gender and this, that, and the other. No, they just want to be treated like human beings. And human beings have certain basic necessities that need to be met. One is the opportunity to work hard and to prosper. The other is their safety. And when I look at a lot of communities across America, they don't have that. And on a big international scale, we don't really have that right now. And so this is all catching up with none other than Joe Biden. And, and people realize this. I mean, this is not just us, right? Like, not just American voters, but people all around the world are realizing that those socialist, collective-style policies and principles they don't actually work. I mean, they're very idealistic. It sounds great, hey? You know, but uh, when it comes down to everybody really doing their fair share and their part in getting the system to work overall, look, it's been tried and tried and tried again. Communism, folks, does not work. As the president of Argentina reminded us this week at the World Economic Forum, you know, this was fantastic. I loved it because you get all these wonky academic liberal types sitting out in the audience, and he just calls them out straight to their faces. I mean, he's like, you morons. He didn't really say that. <laughs> but that was my interpretation of it. I mean, it was great, because, like, these are the people that are there with their lofty, insane ideas that, frankly, help destroy his own country. Let's watch the president of Argentina, Javier Milei, at Davos just this week. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Today I'm here to tell you that the Western world is in danger. And it is endangered because those who are supposed to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism 
and thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, motivated by some well-meaning individuals willing to help others and others motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, the main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Do believe me, no one better place than us, Argentines, to testify to these two points. <laughs> you guys got it? No, they don't. They can't. They can't possibly get it. They'll never get it because that's who they are. But he put it out there. He's like, you know, you want to belong to some little social club or you actually are well-intended. doesn't matter. This stuff doesn't work. It's been proven over and over and over again. And he's saying, look, the world is at risk. America is at risk because you're so enamored with this insanity. You know, who's not enamored with it? Donald Trump. By the way, new polls out just today showing that Donald Trump is ahead even more in the live free or die granite state of New Hampshire. Donald Trump in the lead. We got just a few days to go until this primary. And you know what? He's continuing to gain ground. This is from, a, I think it was a Boston Globe, Suffolk University poll. Um, he, he's, he's just up, 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 up. And you can see, this is actually, this is, I think, a, a Biden-Trump one. This is a different one. I mean, yes, I think overall he's still struggling compared to Biden in the state of New Hampshire. And that will have to be dealt with in time. But let's just talk about the primary right now. I do think he actually could take it all the way, all the way to the White House. But let's look at the primary numbers. So this is Trump versus Haley versus DeSantis. Whew, poor DeSantis, man. He's really really struggling. Trump up 17 points. Again, this is USA Today's Suffolk, but there's another one that just came out today that shows him up even more. So he's gaining. He's gaining on Nikki Haley. He's going to win the day in New Hampshire, whether the you know traditional conservatives like it or not. At some point, they're going to have to figure out how do we work with this guy? Because if we don't work with him, we're working with Biden. Huh. That would be strange, <laughs> but stranger things have happened. Look, I'll tell you, Nikki's big mistake really was not being able to negotiate this sort of tightrope, if you would, this tightrope of being pro-Trump yet running against him. I mean, Vivek did it beautifully. Granted, he dropped out. And DeSantis has tried it, although his whole scheme is a little weird because he's running to the right of Trump which is not really a great thing to do either. He's criticizing Trump for not being conservative enough. I don't think that ever had a chance of getting to first base. And then Nikki's out there. She was pleasant enough until kind of recently. Now she's uh, been quoted calling him a loser and this, that, and the other. It almost doesn't even sound like her vocabulary. I can't even see her saying that. But here, take a look. This is Nikki Haley on Trump. Trump says things... Americans aren't stupid to just believe what he says. The reality is, who lost the House for us? Who lost the Senate? Who lost the White House? Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. Nikki Haley will win every single one of those back for us. Hmm. Of course, he wasn't actually on the ballot there, Nikki. Sometimes 
It's candidate specific and not party specific. I mean, that's what these people don't get, you guys. You know what? Think of all the crossover you had from people who actually liked Bernie Sanders. I mean, you can never imagine that. <laughs> who then went and voted for Trump. Long-standing Democrats who then crossed over and voted for Trump. There's a lot of that that happened. And you've got conservatives that like Nikki Haley and, and Democrats as well. I mean, sometimes I wonder if she might be better off stepping in for Biden. <laughs> you know, maybe she'd have a better shot than Michelle. I don't know. But Nikki Haley is not exactly sort of showcasing the policy chops that got Donald Trump to where he was and is, nor, by the way, is she showcasing the personality of the je ne sais quoi. I don't think she has it, frankly, so it's not going to happen. But she feels and seems very much a part of the establishment. And here's the kicker. Establishment does not matter. Not anymore. What did I say? You can't buy your way into this thing. I know money means a lot. I know money talks, but you know what? When push comes to shove, Americans see through it. They see through all of it. And so Americans, they want someone who's going to look out for them. I showed you this in the poll numbers just the other day. Remember this one? We were looking at the exit polls out of Iowa. I said the Democrats' whole problem is they don't even read their own exit polls, or rather the competitions, the opposition's exit polls. What would they have seen there? They would have seen that Nikki Haley, the contingency that was supporting her in Iowa, was being supported. Nikki was being supported because she kind of talked the talk and they thought she would look good and sound good on a international stage. But the people that voted for Donald Trump said, this guy's going to look out for me. Think about the personal aspect of that. That's something that matters. It's something that should always matter. You want to know that the guy or the gal in the big house, <laughs> no pun intended, on Pennsylvania Avenue is looking out for you. And that's why he's succeeding and will continue to do so through this primary. You know, barring any unforeseen circumstance, I do believe that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for president. Then the big question becomes, well, who on earth is going to be the VP? Could it possibly be Nikki Haley or did she just burn a bridge or two or three? You know, I promised you we could take a little tiny break from politics today. I did. Did I not? I promised you that my friend Lee is going to come on the show because he has this fantastic, fantastic. Do we have, there it is, Our American Stories. This is fantastic. Lee Habib is the producer of this whole thing, the writer of this. He's got a tremendous background, by the way, in, in radio and in storytelling. And he's also super smart. He was a UVA law grad, all that good stuff. Well, Lee has a brand new podcast called Our American Stories. And I want you, when you go to download this podcast, which you better have done. If you haven't done, you need to do it. But if you... Um, if, if you haven't done it, do it. But even if you have, I want you to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and get our American stories because you need it nowadays. We need a little uplifting stuff, a little break from politics, a little break from all the death and destruction. And I kind of like hearing about all these wonderful people that have made us who we are today. So I want to thank Lee Habib for bringing us our American stories. He joins the show right now. Lee, good to have you. Trish, thanks for having me on. 
I have been talking about you like for a couple of weeks now and I keep telling the viewers, I'm like, this is great. This is great. You just have to go there. It's very different, obviously, than my show. Beautifully, beautifully, beautifully produced. In, uh, and, and I'm going to put my like weird production hat on. I love it. Like, I just love the different voices. I love the music. And most importantly, Lee, I love the stories. Because sometimes we feel like we get a little kicked down here in America these days and we lose sight of what made us the greatest nation and strongest economic power on earth. And, and you bring us back in a very simple way, telling us the stories of these individuals. Um, let, me, let me ask you first, what inspired you? I know that you listened to NPR, right? And you kind of didn't yeah. love their version of the show. But just what, what inspired you to do something like this? You know, I kept hearing This American Life, and, uh, and a dear friend of mine and colleague at Salem Media Group, Bill Bennett, sort of challenged me. He said, uh, Lee, This American Life is such a beautifully produced show. It's not argument. It's not debate. It's an hour-long story once a week, and it was NPR's big hit. And he said, what would This American Life sound like if the people making it liked their country? And it was a great question. And uh, I took on the challenge and we started it way back in 2016 in earnest, teasing it around. One state radio station took it, another did. And then ultimately it got picked up by the biggest syndicator in America and the biggest podcast publisher in America. And now it's just killing it. We're heard in 300 markets around the country, two hours a night. And then we're approaching 10 million downloads from a few hundred thousand just a couple of years ago. And I think what people love about it, Trish, is it's stories about underdogs. And the, the most primary story about the underdog is this nation. We started as an underdog nation. If there was a morning line in Las Vegas in 1776, right? Imagine if there was one. And it was this ragtag colonial army with no budget. And it never fought a real war before. And they were going to take up arms against the mightiest, mighty British Navy. And the great country of Great Britain and all of its force, no one would have had, there wouldn't have been a morning line. And yet we managed to achieve and win that. And the war, the country was bitterly divided. Anyone who thinks we're divided now doesn't understand the stories we tell about the revolution, particularly Ben Franklin's home. Inside Ben Franklin's home, the father took the side of the patriots. The son was the royal governor. And the father had the royal governor, his son, thrown in prison, the worst prison in America, never to speak to him again, because he knew the son was going to have the father killed. Ben Franklin and the founders committed treason. They committed treason. And by the way, the son sided with the crown. A lot of loyalists did. The country was bitterly divided. The country was bitterly divided in the Civil War, much more bitterly divided than today. Much more wretched result, 600,000 dead in a population of 10 million. So we go back and tell folks the stories of overcoming what seemed like at the time insurmountable odds. And we do that with entrepreneurs. We do that with artists. We do that with housewives and husbands, ordinary folks who you think, boy, they can't get through this problem in their marriage. They can't get through this problem in their business. And they do. So that, in the end, is sort of what we're trying to do each and every day. Let folks know this is a resilient country. It's a good and beautiful country. Capitalism's good. It's not perfect, but it's good. And the Constitution's good. And my goodness, the country is a good and beautiful country filled with good and beautiful people. And it's inexhaustible. 
the number of stories we get to tell. We're on our sixth year now. We're at almost a thousand stories told today. I'm I'm amazed by how many. By the way, they they are beautifully produced. Like it's one thing to just you know tell a story, but these are told stories, and and it's very entertaining. And by the way, you can kind of consume them in snippets, which is what I've been doing. I think we have a, a by the way, we're talking with Lee Habib. He is the producer of Our American Stories, just a wonderful, uplifting podcast. I mean, you can binge listen to this stuff. That's what, that's what I think. It's really an example of that because they're like sometimes just 11 minutes and you can take one story at a time. I mean, you, you have a tremendous one on Abraham Lincoln's last day. I mean, that's a, it, it's kind of just, you know, not something that you get a chance to think about or, or read about a lot. And I think if you go and you go over and you, you download this podcast and you go and you go and you scroll through, you see all kinds of different things, whether it's historical, whether it's even just, Lee, kind of a, an ode to capitalism, which, you know, like, you know, it, <laughs> it's dear to my heart. I mean, you talk about the, the Home Depot founders, for example, who are just amazing. You know, Ken Langone's got a great story. Um, Bernie Marcus, amazing stories. I mean, there's so much here. And uh, it is overcoming a lot. Like, in, and I like it. It's a, it's a little like church, you know, when you get a really inspirational, you know, sort of sermon from the pastor. It's different, obviously, but I, I think people need that right now. Well, I don't know how much different it is. I mean, think about what, what we're doing in a church, right? We're, we're looking at our individual lives, our souls. We're looking at, and being challenged, by the way, by a good pastor or a good priest to be better versions of ourselves. And in the end, we're, we're trying to overcome the odds of our own lives, uh, overcome our difficulties, overcome our problems, overcome our own flesh, the sins of our own flesh, overcoming that person looking at us in the mirror, Trish. That's our biggest enemy in life. It's the person looking at ourselves in the mirror. How do we how do we become better versions of ourselves? And then these entrepreneurs, they're trying to serve the public. Almost every single story we've told. One of my favorites is Kem Wilson. Uh, now you never heard of Kem Wilson, right? But Kem Wilson Jr. told this. And by the way, we love it when the sons tell the stories of the fathers. We like that better than the historians. Kem Wilson Jr. told the story of his father in 1951. His hustling entrepreneurial father who had done uh, just many, many serial businesses because his father had died when he was seven. So Ken Wilson's father was always hustling because his own dad had died. And he was taking the family to Washington, D.C. to a convention. And along the way, they had five kids. They stopped at a hotel. And back then, you didn't have Expedia. You didn't have Google. You didn't have Google Maps. You had to drive. And this is hard for people to remember. They had to drive up to a motel because there weren't motels. There wasn't a hotel business up until then. And you would have to go out, the father, meet the person who ran that motel, check out the room, see if it was clean, see if it was copacetic. And then so many times the father would come back and say to the family, we're going to have to drive on. By the way, Ken Wilson's father did this several times driving from Memphis to Washington with five kids in tow. By the time the trip was over, the father says to the kids and his wife, I need to solve this problem. One day, there'll be a sign. It'll be a company. It'll be standardized. Uh, You'll be able to call an 800 number. And every time you see the words, a holiday inn, you're going to think, good place to rest. 
standardized bed, a pool for the kids to swim, a Bible by the side, by the way, a doctor on call. And by the way, he told his wife, one day there'll be 400 of these. His wife laughed. He started in 1951. And by 1968, there were a thousand Holiday Inns. And then came all the other hotels. He also started the modern franchising business before Ray Kroc. There was. I did not know that. I would have said it was Ray. No, it was Kemmons and Ray studied what Kem did because Kem realized there wasn't enough capital for him to start these hotels, but there was enough capital in each marketplace for local entrepreneurs to ride the national marketing of Holiday Inn and the national branding. What he was proudest of wasn't just that he solved the hotel problem for Americans, but that he made hundreds of people who invested in the Holiday Inn brand, multimillionaires. Today, 20% of all American businesses are franchises in which the average couple can run a subway or run a Taco Bell or run a Roto-Rooter or run a Blinds.com and without total full expertise, be able to have a little piece of their American dream. We have Kemen Wilson Sr. to thank for that. And we have Kemen Wilson Jr. who told the story, another great entrepreneur in his own right. It's, it's, it's wonderful. You know, I get goosebumps when I hear this stuff and I just Me got too. them again. And Me too. I don't have sleeves on today, so not great. But like, I really do. I mean, I'm so touched by this and I, I, I can get kind of sappy, but we need this, Lee. We need, I mean, like, it's like we're hungry for this. Just like I think you know, those that find religion, right, really are hungry for it. I feel like the country is hungry and needing, if you would, um, some guidance and sort of uh, some inspiration, and it's a little bit of a how-to, but an also a you can do. And I love the part about helping. You know, b- b- ri- what do they say? Rising tide lifts all boats. I mean, everybody yeah. doing better because one person had this brilliant idea and shared it. It's very much that we're not living in a zero-sum game world, but we can make each other better and help each other out collectively together. Well, and and faith is a big part of this show, too, because it animates so many Americans' lives. We tell a story about Johnny Cash. Well, Pastor Greg Laurie tells it. This is one of the great Christian storytellers in America, and he wrote a book about Johnny Cash, the faith dimension of Johnny Cash. You know, when you watch Walk the Line, the movie, you're thinking to yourself, why did Johnny do drugs and why did Johnny stop? Neither of those answers are in that movie. By the way, the family was not particularly pleased with that because the reason Johnny did the drugs, many believe, Pastor Greg Laurie did, Johnny did himself, is when Johnny was a young teenager, his brother was slightly older. They were sharecroppers' kids, and the father wanted those kids to work part-time jobs to help the family. Well, the part-time job in the summer was going to the sawmill. Well, one morning, Johnny says, you know, brother, I don't, I don't want to go to the sawmill. I want to fish. The older brother goes to the sawmill. Well, the sawmill pulled his own older brother into the saw and killed him. Johnny blamed himself for killing his brother, and it didn't help that the father told the son the wrong son died. So Johnny lives with his trauma his whole life, battles with his demons, battles with drugs. One day he actually tries to kill himself in the Nickajack Caves, and God basically redeems him, and God calls him, God keeps chasing and pursuing him. Now, to people who don't believe in God, they're thinking, oh, how nutty. But for the 60 or 70% of Americans who do believe in God, they're going, oh, that's not nutty. 
I've had that moment on my knees when I lost a child or I lost a, a, a job. Uh, we've all been on our knees. And Johnny Cash ends up, Christ saves Johnny's life. He ends up touring with Billy Graham. He ends up recording the New Testament, the entire thing, does multiple movies about the birth of Jesus Christ. And his, his, rock, his rock and roll friend said, Johnny sold out to religion. The Christian folks were like, Johnny did a lot of drugs and he's divorced. And Johnny said, this is my cross to bear. I'm not comfortable with the rock and roll crowd. The religious people don't quite trust me, but this is the line I'm walking the rest of my life. That battle between the flesh and the spirit is a, is a, is a battle every single Christian, Jew, and Muslim fights every day of their life. And we're talking 80% of Americans are a member of one of those three major religions. It, it, it is universal. It's universal. Let me, let me also ask you this, because there's so many incredible, incredible stories. I mean, you think of the success that America has had from a business perspective, from a, an artistic perspective, from a historical perspective. How do you decide, Lee, who to profile? I mean, it's a lot of resources, a lot of time. You know, I know you work with historians and you find when you can some of the family members, as you just pointed out in the case of Mr. Wilson and Holiday Inn. But like, how, how do you decide? We have a small staff, thank goodness, and that, that makes it easy. Quality always determines the outcome. What's the quality of the story? Moreover, what's the quality of the storyteller? The storyteller is not great, but the story is great. We don't do it. But if it's a great story and a great storyteller, we do it. And we have all kinds of uh, folks helping with, with us. I mean, Hillsdale College is a major uh, part of this endeavor from the beginning. The Jack Miller Center. Historians from all over the country, even liberal historians. Uh, Lawrence Bergreen has done three pieces for us. His Christopher Columbus, the definitive biography on Columbus, is, is, is beautifully told by Lawrence. He's about to do Irving Berlin, his life story. It's an amazing life story, Irving Berlin's. And so it's turning out that these historians are loving us because we're actually giving them real time to talk about American history. And many historians have been canceled. You know, you know, okay. Stephen Ambrose, he's, he's died, but his estate liked our work so much that they handed over almost 80 hours of audio of their dad telling stories about Lewis and Clark, the Brooklyn Bridge, I mean, you name it, Transcontinental Railroad, Ike, because he wrote the biography on Eisenhower, the Band of Brothers, I could go on and on, the B-24 and how the B-24 Liberator was made in one Ford plant, almost half of all of the B-24 Liberators were made in one Ford plant in Detroit, 8,000, almost a B-24 a minute was coming off the Ford plants. And so we have Stephen Ambrose from the grave telling these stories on our show. And by the way, the B-24 one may be the best because here's Henry Ford, an anti-Semite, no doubt, but his talent with, with manufacturing allowed us to create this arsenal of democracy. And that arsenal of democracy was the manufacturing prowess that Ford had developed when Willow Run Plant opened in 1942, when it was finally opened, by 1944, they'd made 8,000 B-24 liberators. You can't make that up. And, and America made almost 17,000 of these planes, which of course gave air cover, ground cover for our troops, and also took out enemy oil refineries, enemy tracks, enemy bridges. 
So the story of America, even an anti-Semite, and, and Ford was, but think about it. His talents led to the evisceration and the elimination of the Nazi menace and liberated Jews, right? Uh, and so and this is the force of capitalism. Without capitalism, <laughs> America does not win World War II. We, we have oh, great yeah. You're preaching to the choir on that, playing. as well as the whole audience who's cheering you on. By the way, we're talking with Lee Habib, he is the producer of Our American Stories. I love the title, by the way. I just got to tell you because you think about NPR and This American Life, it's kind of a downer. Our American Stories feels very personal, and it gives, I think, every American a kind of ownership over their own history, right? They are ours, collectively ours. I grew up in a big Irish Catholic family, and every time we had the family together for Easter, Christmas, Fourth of July, you name it, Lee, we kids would say, tell us the poor stories. <laughs> and they had a lot of them, right? Because they're a big, poor Irish Catholic family. But they had a mother and a father and a community that cared about them, a church that cared about them. And they all went on to do really, really great things. And I, I consider myself a, a, a byproduct of all that success, right? With each generation doing a little bit better. But you know what I always wanted to hear? I wanted to hear the poor stories. I wanted to hear them because I wanted to know what my family overcame. And I think that you're getting at something here for all of us in America, because it doesn't have to be just your family. No. We can all appreciate what we collectively as a society have overcome, thanks to freedom, thanks to capitalism, all of which, by the way, a whole other topic. I know you don't want to get into politics on all this, but it feels very much in jeopardy these days. Well, it's in jeopardy because we, we gave the schools, let's face it, I mean, we gave the schools to the left. They didn't steal the schools from us. We gave them to them. My dad was a high school history teacher, a superintendent of schools. He told me all the time, where are the free market capitalists, the lovers of America, dedicating one of their children to the pursuit of education? Why are we surrendering the citadel of power, the ultimate power, the teaching of the masses about American civics? So this show is, in, in essence, a way to go around the schools. By the way, to your point about the Irish, Trish, and to your point about this show feeling like it's personal, 10% of our stories come from the listeners, and two of our best stories were from listener suggestions. One, Jimmy Neary. You know Neary's. If you're Irish, you know Neary's pub. But let me tell you, when you hear the story of Jimmy Neary and how he got that pub and how he got a street named after him, in New York City and a funeral that stopped the city, you'll love it. And you also have to hear our story about the first Kennedys, because before there was John F. Kennedy, before there was Joseph Kennedy, they were the first Kennedys who came here were women, not men. They were escaping the potato famine and they got jobs working as maids, mostly. But pretty soon, because of their industriousness, these Irish women were pretty soon opening liquor stores, bars, buying buildings. And the story of the first Kennedy, and she's and, and her story is remarkable, uh, will make every Irish person proud. And by the way, they faced unbelievable discrimination as Catholics. Indeed, when her first child died as an infant, they, she wanted to bury her son in Boston. The Protestants would not allow Catholics to be buried in Boston. She had to take her kid outside the city to bury him. But this didn't stop the Irish or the Catholics. The Catholics ended up building up their own independent school system, right? And, and, and the Jesuits and the Catholics built up this miraculous 
alternate school system because a lot of the Protestant families said, no, we don't believe in the Catholic Church. Now, that, that seems distant, and right now you don't have those problems between Catholics and Protestants anymore. But my goodness, in the 1920s, in the yeah, 1930s. In the 20s. I mean, what you're saying is actually sort of reminiscent of, I was talking with a, the founder of American Greatness the other day, and he was saying one of the problems that we're having, right, in this cancel culture environment, especially specifically for conservatives, is a similar kind of thing where you're not being allowed entry into whatever institutions, et cetera, you are somehow seen as persona non grata, kind of like the Irish were back in the day. And, uh, you know, there's there's a need to kind of, rise above that however we can in, in our own ways collectively. Um, fascinating when you look at all these immigrant groups that have come here and faced discrimination and had to rise above, or even in the post-Civil War era when Black Americans had to figure out, okay, how, how do we succeed? And, and a lot of it was relying on each other, relying on community, and relying on family. You have a lot of wonderful comments here from viewers. Uh, some of them know your show already and love it and listen to it. Others are talking about how they love the Irish too. I think we got an O'Donnell here uh, weighing in on, on some of this. And, and, and people really, I, I think that this is sort of the, the, the commonality here that everybody wants to, to think about success. I was talking with my cousin the other day from who lives in France, he, he married a, a French woman, and she was, she was actually explaining this to me. This, some of the viewers have heard this story before. But I was really struck because she teaches American, um, she teaches English, and he, he's really into American history and American literature. And they were telling me, like, there is no equivalent, right? There's no French dream. Like, nobody has a French dream. There's nothing in literature in France or in Italy or in Spain or Germany or India or, or, or Argentina that talks about the Argentine dream or the Spanish dream, et cetera. It is the American dream. And what I love about what you're doing is you're keeping it alive and well, because my fear, Lee, is that people are losing sight of that. And sure, other people are coming here and want to come here. I get it so that they can partake in the American dream. But if the Americans that are here don't hear those stories like me, you know, listening to the poor stories of the Irish, then what happens to this culture we've built? Well, you know, what happened is we take it back. That dinner table. Hey, where did, when did grandma come to this country? When did grandpa come to this country? Why? What was it like when they came here? I mean, in the end, we're not only not telling the story of America to each other, we're not telling our own stories because everyone here came from somewhere else at some other time and had to overcome tremendous adversity from whatever country, my side, Lebanese and Sicilian. Uh, you know, very different stories. But in the end, my goodness, both suffered a lot. Both paid a price for the next generation. In fact, many of them sacrificed a generation to come here so their kids could live better. So those stories of self-sacrifice uh, and courage, those are the kind that inspire. You know, there's a great moment where David McCullough is telling a story about the Constitution and about inheritance on our Constitution Week shows. And he was talking about a great, imagine having a family and having a great Van Gogh or a great painting. And you hand this down to the kids, but the kids know nothing about Van Gogh. They know nothing about the painting. They take it and they give it off at some garage sale or they take it over to the Salvation Army because they think it's worthless. It's just a bunch of paint. And he said, look, you've got to teach the kids about what that painting means, where it came from. And that's what we have here in America. We have this inheritance. Every family has it. And it might not be a perfect one. You may not have had a good dad. 
You may not have had a perfect marriage that your parent, your parents may not have had a great marriage, but still what, who are the people who came here and what opportunities did they give me? And that gratitude that comes from knowing your inheritance and every American inherits all these rights, all these opportunities. We did nothing to have our first amendment rights. We didn't do anything to have capitalism available, free markets, property rights, be able to, the ability to own an Apple stock. I can own a piece of this company and it's secured and it's mine. I try to teach every young person, hey, you have an iPhone? You could be an owner. Tomorrow, you could be an owner. Don't buy that new pair of sneakers. Buy two shares of Apple stock. This is fun being an owner in your own life and not a victim. It's fun to recognize this quilt that is America. Look, my wife, it, I am Lebanese and Sicilian. My wife is part Irish, part American Indian, and part Scandinavian, which means my daughter is Lebanese, Italian, Scandinavian, American Indian, and Irish. This can only happen in America, how we live, but more importantly, how we love each other. How we love each other is amazing. It's for amazing. Sure, for sure. Listen, Lee has an incredible show. I'm sure, you know, they're watching you now, and I think everybody feels better having talked to you, Lee, because, you know, it, it's kind of a downer out there these days as, as we look at all the news flow. Um, you know, Disney ought to put you on. I, I know we got you at Salem, but, you know, Disney ought to put you on as a consultant. We're going to talk about that story later on, guys, because bad stuff going on Disney despite Bob Iger's big paycheck. But uh, this is kind of in a way, I think sort of what Walt Disney was kind of getting at in, in some way, shape or form, great storytelling and inspiration, be inspired and know that, you know, somebody else has overcome something and you can too. Yep. Our American Stories, fantastic title, fantastic show, fantastic producer. Lee, I want to thank you for joining. We got to get you back. Happy to do it anytime, Trish. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Lee Habib, our American stories. Make sure, guys, I'm going to put it in the chat right now. Make sure you go to Apple. Here I am. You can see me typing. You know we're live. See? Stories. There you go. So make sure you download me and make sure you download Lee. Really great, 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 great stuff. All right. Not such great stuff. What's going on? Back here at home with uh, the modern uh, day uh, secretary, Secretary Mayorkas, uh, our Homeland Security chief. The GOP, they're taking no prisoners on this one. They came out, all of them voting in unison, to impeach Biden's Homeland Security chief. They are recommending, right? Like, it's not like done, done, because now you'd have to start the trial, et cetera. I mean, we keep waiting, keep waiting, keep waiting. But we got a problem. I mean, we, we, we're a very open country. You heard what Lee was just saying about how we've got all these different people from all these different places and how that makes us special and that makes us great. So we're not anti-immigration, but ladies and gentlemen, let's be a little realistic. Like, you got to know who's here. You got to know when they're coming in. You got to know why they're coming in. You got to know if they're additive. Believe me, they were checking the Irish back in the day, and yet we're not doing any of that. We're one big, giant, disorganized mess, and it's costing New York. It's costing Chicago. It's clearly costing Texas and Arizona, the border states. That's obvious. And now it's costing Denver, Colorado, the mayor of Denver, Colorado, who's a Democrat. He's going to be in trouble just like Eric Adams over this one. He's a Democrat. And he's like, look, you know, we want to welcome everybody. But suddenly we got 37,000 people here that we didn't expect in Denver. And it's taken up 10% of our budget, a budget that we don't have. At some point, we need some help. 
Hello, Joe Biden. Hello, Mayorkas. Listen to the Democrat mayor of Denver, Colorado here. You know that without federal support and without federal action, the impact on a city like Denver is this would be a $180 million impact on our budget in 2024. That's more than 10% of our entire city budget. And so, and so what do you do? Like something's got to give, okay? Like this just cannot continue. And this is why Joe Biden, he's, he's just not going to be able to do it. He's not going to be able to do it. I'm telling you, mark my words. There is no way this guy can get elected. It's probably why we are looking at Michelle Obama. I think it's going to, I mean, they, at some point, somebody's going to be the grown-up in the room and say, hey, buddy, you can't get elected. And that's probably going to be the outcome of this. I mean, unless it's, I don't know, Sheryl Sandberg. Doubt it, doubt it. Maybe she'll become president of Harvard. They're looking for one these days. <laughs> anyway, that, I'm talking about the wo- woman who used to be over at Facebook. I I don't see how Joe has a path to success in light of the atrocities that we've been witnessing just over the last three and a half years. Um, You know, Lee was talking also about something important, which is ownership in America. Well, if you uh, if you own a share of Disney stock, you're probably not too happy. It depends on when you bought it. But, you know, if you bought it back in 2020, 2021, you're really not happy. Because it used to be about 200 bucks. These days, it's going for about 91. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, this is part of the problem with capitalism because sometimes the resources don't go to the right places. Bob Iger, he got $31.6 million in 2023. Kind of a nice paycheck for a stock that keeps going down, right? So Bob Iger, if you guys recall, Bob Iger, he is on round two at Disney. There was that other Bob, Bob Chapek, who came in to take over for Iger. Bob Iger, by the way, back in the day, used to make more money, somewhere around $49 million, so he's taking a pay cut. <laughs> of course, the stock price has been cut in half. But anyway, he, um, there you go, 45 I was wrong. I was, I, was a, I was like a few million off. Hey, you know, when you're talking these numbers, $45.9 million, so call it 46 back in 2021. That was when the stock was doing really well. But, you know, he's got $865,000 in a base salary. He's got $16.1 million in stock awards, $10 million in stock award options, and then $2.14 million in a cash bonus, plus handy other nearly two point five hanging around. So Bob Iger's sitting pretty, but you know what? Disney's not. Disney's not. And I think that Disney's going to continue having challenges. It could be an opportunity if it can somehow course correct. I mean that like it needs a major course correction, but it's really hard to do given that everybody that you're hiring is part of this woke mafia, so to speak, that really doesn't see the world like what Lee and I were just talking about. Not at all. They don't understand or respect, frankly, the beauty of American capitalism, the incredible history of this country. And as a result, they're more focused, shall we say, on projecting this woke agenda than they are on entertaining people and telling great stories and giving the customer what the customer wants. And so there's a guy named Nelson Peltz, who's a billionaire investor, tends to be more conservative than he is liberal. He has a daughter that you may have seen in some of the tabloid headlines because she's married to David and Victoria Beckham's son. Anyway, Nelson Peltz, he runs Chuyan Fund Management, and he's there rattling the cages. He wants board seats. He's nominating himself to the board, and he's like, Bob Iger, fix it. You're a bad manager. This stock should not be where it is. Let's watch him here with Jim Cramer on CNBC. That's the problem here, Jim. This company is just not being run properly. The board oversight is 
is awful. Uh, it really is. Uh, the park, certain as I said, certain rides were great, but you can see it's getting a bit long in the tooth. They need more capital invested. They need more capital invested now because the competition is getting keener. You've got Comcast opening 500 acres right down the road in two years with a brand new park. They're also opening parks in Chicago, opening uh, a park in Texas, uh, pardon me, not Chicago, Las Vegas. And, and these are, this is where all the value today in the stock price resides. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it could be good. They just got to figure out a way to unlock it. But how do you unlock it if you have such a woke agenda? I mean, they admitted this. They admitted this in their annual filing that came out this fall saying, you know what, we're not always in sync with what our customers think. And our customers have a certain perception of us because of our views on things like ESG, I'm paraphrasing, environmental social governance. And it's costing the company. I mean, they, they lost some $1.5 billion, $1.4 billion in streaming revenue. That was revealed recently. They've had a series of disasters in terms of their, their hit movies. And then there was that ESPN thing. Remember that one? I mean, whole other side. They're selling off ESPN, I guess. But uh, ESPN which, by the way, is just kind of a dying business because, hey, look, we're here right now. We're streaming, right? That is the future. And Iger does know that as well as Nelson Peltz. So they, they're thinking about how to position Disney for the future, but they got a, a messed up broadcast situation with the likes of The View that I keep showing you. And then this one, ESPN, of course, having to give back 37 Emmy Awards because it's bizarre. They literally like created fake names and put them on entries. So if they won, they would get extra awards because apparently people wanted these little trinkets to put around their office. I mean, wow. Does that not tell you a lot about the staff at Disney overall? I mean, that's a screenshot into how they think, is it not? And, and then you got like some messed up stuff where everybody's pointing fingers at the other side and Bob Iger's joining in on that. Ooh, big, bad Elon Musk. We don't like Twitter. We like everything else, but we don't like Twitter. And <laughs> Elon wasn't having it. Remember this recently where he's like, basically, well, he, he said it. I'm, I'm going to ask you, like, if we don't have the swears taken out, we probably can't run it because, you know, <laughs> trying to keep it clean. But if we do have it, you got to see this. You get like, I love this. I know some of you saw it already, but Elon Musk is just like really, really, okay, we'll, we'll do that another time. It sounds like uh, we don't have the clean version of that. So I encourage you to find it. But he basically said, F you, F you, Bob, because you don't want to advertise on our particular platform. So Disney's got all kinds of issues and hopefully Nelson can rattle the cages enough to improve upon that because I like Disney. In fact, as a kid, we used to go as an annual pilgrimage to Disney. We'd stop at the Holiday Inn. We'd make sure, you know, we could afford it. My dad would go in and check the price because you didn't have an Expedia or an internet back then. Turning to other companies right now in trouble, I want to go to shares of Boeing, which have been trading down there down in today's session after this unbelievable video. Have you guys seen this? This is insane this video of this plane it's a boeing that was coming out of miami oh my gosh oh my god it's on fire oh my god sorry it's on fire mom 
What? Can we? Can we? I hope they're okay. I wonder if they're doing an emergency. Oh. No, it's still doing it. It's still doing it. Can you believe that? I mean, can you believe seeing that in the sky? Can you imagine being on that plane? Apparently, the pilot can be heard in some audio saying, Mayday, Mayday, we have an engine fire. Request access back to the airport. No, we'll go ahead and land. So this is um, just, um, can, can we watch it again? I'll ask Drew because I I, I, I almost oh my lost God, my train of thought. Fire. I was watching this and I just was oh my so God. amazed. Like, gosh. I mean, just awful. So this is a Boeing 737 jet. And this is what happened shortly after takeoff in Miami. Inspectors actually found a, a softball size hole above the engine. No, it's still doing it. What is going on? It's still doing I mean, ha- how, what is going on with Boeing flights? I mean, you saw what happened just the other day on the MAX. I think we've got that video too. This is a 767. The MAX, it just kind of lost a chunk of itself mid-air. Take a look at this, guys. I mean, unbelievable. You know, somebody's little kid's like shirt was sucked off of him. He lost a stuffed animal as well. And it's, it's just incredible. I mean, we saw some video the other day of the Boeing CEO. He actually really broke down. He felt bad. And he's like, the onus is on us. The onus is on me. We've got to correct this. Yeah, you bet you got to correct this. But here, you know, the, the, keep in mind, like this 747 is a big deal. Um, It's the backbone of the U.S. military. Here's a quote from the chief executive officer. This one at Atlas Air Worldwide, John Dietrich talking about the Boeing 747. He said, we're proud to serve the U.S. military as the largest provider of their aircraft, carrying both troops and cargo. And the 747 is the backbone of that critical work. So for many, many reasons we need to, this is actually a Boeing 737 forgive me, Boeing 747, got to get my numbers straight here, um, that's now at issue, but it comes on the heels of the MAX being an issue as well. We, 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 have, to, we have to secure the skies. There was a woman who spoke about this most recently, the, the woman who's um, overseeing the, the transportation authority. And she effectively said, hey, you know, like, we got to try and do a better job at all this. Yeah, think, you think? Now what are they going to tell us? Where's Pete? Has anybody seen Pete Buttigieg? Mayor Pete? Like, aren't you supposed to be, like, running the whole transportation thing? Is, isn't that your job these days? Does anybody go to work in the Biden administration? I'm looking at you, Lloyd Austin. We hope you're okay. But, you know, you got to tell us when you're going to be out. And what about Pete? I mean, isn't he going to respond to any of this? Probably not, because it seems like everybody in this administration is just asleep at the switch in more ways than one. These are not qualified people. They are not good at their jobs. And we in America are paying the price. We are the ones most affected by this. (sighs) You know, We started the show talking about financial surveillance, and I was joking about Jamie Dimon. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why Jamie Dimon was saying, hey, enough already. These are good people. Don't, like, just demonize half the country. By the way, it's become kind of a banking headache. Who knows? But we've seen quite a lot coming out of Davos this week. 
The Ecoside Lady, do you guys remember her? This is one of the best of. Ecoside Lady is worried that we are killing too many fish, we are killing too many vegetables, and that it is like, well, murder to the vegetables and to the fish. Watch. I mean, ecocide as a word is becoming more, it's becoming better known around the world. And the concept is generally mass damage and destruction of nature. Um, but legally speaking, um, what our organization and other collaborators aim to do is to have this recognized legally as a serious crime. Because one of the issues that sort of pervades all of this discussion is that we have a kind of cultural, very ingrained habit of not taking damage to nature as seriously as we take damage to people and property. Um, and that, I mean, you know, if you're campaigning for human rights, at least you know mass murder, torture, all of these things are serious crimes. But there's no equivalent in the environmental space. Um, and so, and, and you know, unlike a, an international crime like genocide that in, involves a specific intent, with ecocide what we see is actually what people are trying to do, what businesses are trying to do is make money, is, you know, is farm, is fish, is do all of these things that are... Um, you know, producing energy and so on um, as well. But what's, it, what's missing is the awareness and the conscience around the side effects, around the collateral damage that happens with that. Oh, you know, she sounds so much smarter because she's got that British accent, right? Look, you know, look, we should take the environment seriously. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to downplay any of that. Uh, you know, you, you spend two minutes in Northern California, and I think you get a real appreciation, right? I have the Highway 1, just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. I, I'm a big believer in protecting, etc. But I'm also a big believer in humanity and a big believer in being able to feed the population. If it means fishing and farming, hey, you know, you got to fish and farm. Like at some point, they don't even want us to breathe, it feels like. Wow. So that was one of the highlights. That was one of the highlights out of Davos, Switzerland. The other biggie was the founder of Davos, started back in like 1973, and he started getting everybody together. It's become like the elite shindig to be at in the month of January every year, and they kind of set the agenda, right, for what's going to be top of mind for the year. Well, his name is Klaus Schwab, and he's been quoted a couple of times. He argues that he's being taken out of context. He probably is being taken out of context. So in total fairness, I think he's just trying to cite the potential dangers or perhaps, (laughs) depending on how you look at it, opportunities of something called artificial intelligence, AI. So he sat down for an interview at his Davos conference, and he spoke about just exactly what the power of AI could be. Let's run this clip because he talks about, ladies and gentlemen, how one day you may not even need to vote because AI will know what you want. Now, is that a good or a bad thing in your opinion? Watch. The technology now is, and digital technologies mainly have an analytical power. Now we go into a predictive power, and we have seen the first examples, and your company very much involved into it. But then the next step could be to go into a prescriptive uh, mode, which means um, uh, you you do not even have to have elections anymore, because you can already uh, predict what, uh, predict, and afterwards you can say, why do we need elections? Because we know what the result will be. Wow. Well, I I still want to have elections. Thank you very much. He's trying to demonstrate that AI can be extraordinarily powerful, and I'm sure it can. It's part of the reason why we need to keep a very, very close eye on it, ladies and gentlemen. 
But nonetheless, I mean, thinking about the power of AI, its ability to maybe wipe out elections in the future because it knows in terms of the overall commonality, what we need, what we want, et cetera, that's kind of scary. In fact, it reminds me of this science fiction novel. I had the author on maybe a couple years ago. I got I to gotta dig this out and play some for you maybe next week because in this science fiction novel, the AIs take over the world. It's this dystopian novel about what could be. And it was actually written by somebody who was at one point, he came up as a PhD candidate in the 1970s and got his PhD in none other than artificial intelligence back in the day when nobody cared about artificial intelligence. So he was a little late to that, but became a software developer and said, you know what? I've written enough code. I'm going to write a book. And the premise of this book is really kind of fascinating because in the book, sure enough, there are no elections because the AIs control everything. So not to go too far down that path, but wow, Klaus, you may be uh, having a premonition there, one that we don't necessarily want. Meanwhile, let's think about how anti-Trump, think about how anti-Trump the Davos crowd really is right now. I mean, they all hate him, right? It's Europe, for goodness sakes. And there's an anchor from Bloomberg, and she's a European Bloomberg anchor, so I guarantee you, double whammy, she definitely hates Trump. And she went on this stage and she asked all these people, including, you know, Christine Lagarde and David Rubenstein, who's a big deal private equity investor, is there any way, any way at all that countries can Trump-proof themselves? Take a listen to what David Rubenstein had to say. I kind of liked him here. But, David, a, a, number of, a number of leaders have expressed concern of what Donald Trump in the White House means for fragmentation, for foreign policy. Right, right. Is there any way that the rest of the world can Trump-proof their economies? <laughs> um, if somebody has a way to do that, I think they should uh, patent it and uh, probably sell it to somebody else. But it would be very difficult to do. Clearly, the biggest political change that occurred in the United States last year also was unpredictable or unpredicted, I should say. I don't think anybody outside of the Trump family would have predicted that Donald Trump would be indicted four times, 91 counts uh, on various indictments, and that his popularity would soar to the point where he has a reasonably good chance of locking up the Republican nomination by, by March, which is earlier than almost any contested presidential candidate um, has been able to lock up the Republican nomination. If he is nominated, be the first time ever that a Republican Party has nominated the same person three times in a row. He clearly has a following that many of the analysts missed, and I don't think any of the court cases are likely to dis uh, change his uh, momentum. So I think um, people should uh, recognize that he's a serious political force and should not discount the fact that he could well be elected again, despite the fact that many people in Europe, where we are now, uh, are not really his biggest fans. And so... And so David's right. I mean, I'm laughing about the, you know, you could patent it thing. <laughs> they, they'd all be trading that amongst themselves. But you know what? That would be like ESG. I think the stock would go down. Look, I actually think Trump did a lot of good stuff. For the world, for our country, you know that. I mean, I'm a, a big believer in a lot of the policies. And by the way, you don't have to take my word for it. Although I am a policy wonk. You don't have to take my word for it. The CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, America's largest bank, which, by the way, just had record earnings, Jamie Dimon, 
He came out and said, look, you got to stop demonizing half the country. The policies were good, for goodness sakes. Watch him here as the anchors are like, whoa. You know, actually, one of the anchors is fine with it. I know him, and he's more conservative. But the others are like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe Jamie Dimon just said that. And he's saying it at Davos, of all places. But he's, he's telling them what, frankly, just needs to be said. Here we go. We've got this great hand, but when people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump, and they think they're voting, and they're basically scapegoating them, that you are like him. Uh, and, but I don't think they're voting for Trump because of his family values. Now, if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He was kind of right about NATO, kind of right about immigration. Mm-hmm. He grew the economy quite well. China, Trade, China ta- virus. Tax reform worked. Mm-hmm. He was right about some of China. I don't, th- I don't like no, what he did. No, I said China virus. Yeah, I understand. When he, when yeah. he may have been right. He, he, and I don't like how he said things about I Mexico. I don't like, but he wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues. And that's why they're voting for him. And, and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. And when you guys have people up here, you should always ask the why. Not like it's a binary thing. You're supporting right. Trump. You're not supporting Trump. Why are you supporting It's hard to hate Trump? 75 million of your fellow Americans. And it's, I, I agree. It's done crazy. And, you know, the it. Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables, but, hugging on to their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really? Like, can we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? Jimmy, and, and I do think the economy will affect. And I think this, this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election campaign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I think Jamie's absolutely right. I mean, you have to ask yourself, are the Democrats doing this deliberately? Did they actually want him to win so that Joe Biden would be running against Donald Trump? Did they think that that was the strategy? I don't think it's a winning strategy. I, I, I think Joe Biden is just a bad candidate no matter what, and Donald Trump can beat him. But why do they so desperately want it to be Donald Trump that is the nominee? I think they do. I mean, I actually do think, I mean, otherwise, why would they just, I mean, they could be that stupid. Think about it. I mean, they keep piling on all these legal challenges. But as David Rubenstein pointed out, and as Jamie Dimon pointed out, Like, it's not going anywhere, guys. In fact, you just make him stronger. The more you pile on, the more people say, wow, that could be me. They could target me just like they're targeting Donald Trump. And perhaps they have, again, accusations we brought you at the start of the show about American banks being told by the feds to look for things like MAGA, Trump, Dick Sporting Goods. I mean, wow. So... I think that the more they go after him from a legal perspective, especially with not much coming up, like they, they, you know, they keep trying, they keep trying, they keep trying, and they don't get anywhere. Instead, all we learn is, oh, turns out that dossier was from uh, Hillary Clinton's side. <laughs> turns out that laptop actually was Hunter Biden's. And it turns out that, well, that, that coronavirus looks like it really did come from Wuhan, China, from the lab in Wuhan, China, even though the CIA is still divided on it. Every other three-letter agency says, yeah, it came from the lab. I mean, so you see what's going on. After a while, people are like, whoa. And now they're going after him. They could go after me. They may already be going after me. I mean, it's a crazy time, and I'm here for you in it. I want you to be here for me too, because we have to be able to exchange ideas and and have this conversation. I appreciate you being here. So many of you have joined, joined as uh, members. Don back here with us. You know, he's he's complaining that we don't have more people watching today. But listen, it's Friday. 
It's a snowy day up in the Northeast. I'm going to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. He's talking about algorithms. If that's the case, all the more reason why you need to subscribe. All the more reason to hit the bell so that you know when I'm here. All the more reason for me to get an actual regular time. (laughs) We're working on it. Trust me. We got all kinds of technology things that we're trying to deal with. Um, But the Reganites are here, as Don likes to call us. Absolute Reganites. Ian, good to see you back here. I welcome you back to the program. Thank you for being a member here on the channel. Um, Look, it's, it's... a difficult and a complex time in America right now. And I am a big believer in all of our freedoms and all of the things that we were talking about earlier with Lee that have made us a success that we are. And we need to remind each other of that. We absolutely do. And just because I need to prove to you that this is indeed a live show, this is red or orange. Take your pick. Someone's asking what color dress I have on. Don, we are at 180K and I'm so psyched. Yes. Open the champagne, a toast to all of you for getting us to 180K here on YouTube, upwards of 250 on Rumble, and I think we're upwards of 250 now on Facebook as well. But I'm watching the YouTube chat. I want you guys here. I want you subscribing, and I want you hitting the bell. Thank you so much for being here. Have a fantastic week. We've got all kinds of content coming over the weekend for you, all the clips. So share them, like them, comment on them. I read all your comments. I do. Even if I don't respond, know that I'm reading because I do actually see them. Great to have you here. Thank you so much. Have a fabulous weekend. I'll see you Monday.